So this morning's scripture comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. You'll find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 983. Would you all stand for the reading of God's word? And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Please take a moment and reflect on God's word. My name is Sam Kennedy. I uh, served as a member of the staff here for five years, was a a member of the church for just about 14 years. And so this is uh, is like a homecoming. It's great. So I'll be preaching this Sunday and then next Sunday. And sadly, you know, really the stars of the show, my family, uh, my wife Shauna and our kids are not here. They're in Oregon visiting her family, but they will be back next week. So we should see an uptick in attendance uh, next week, even if it's just but three people. Um, the passage this morning is uh, a continuation of Paul's prayer uh, that last time I preached a couple weeks ago, uh, we kind of did the first chunk of it uh, from verses one uh, through verses eight. And that was kind of the uh, Paul's prayer of thankfulness for what he saw in the church. And this is really Paul's prayer of, of request, Paul's prayer of asking. This is... Um, Paul's prayer dealing with the gap that we feel between um, our aspiration uh, of what we want to be and what we should be and, and uh, reality <laughs> of how we actually live out our day-to-day lives. Uh, so it's appropriate as we uh, study this prayer that maybe I should start with prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's so much in here that... Um, is good and beautiful and true, and there's nuggets in here I could never possibly uh, dig out. But I pray that you would bring some measure of uh, change to our life and fruitfulness um, and life and joy and freedom to us as a result of what we uh, hear from your word today. Help me to proclaim your gospel uh, faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. As we enter into uh, looking at this prayer, I think it's maybe helpful to reflect on the idea that there's a lot of cynicism in the world today about the power of prayer. Um, It's really common uh, when tragedies like what happened in El Paso and the other gosh, countless tragedies and and public acts of violence and injustice that happen in this world, Uh, when those things happen for a politician or 
a celebrity or someone to, to tweet out, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims. And uh, recently, there's, there's kind of a backlash against this, against sending out thoughts and prayers. And the idea uh, behind the backlash was, well, you can't just send thoughts and prayers. You can't just use that as, as an excuse. Uh, you, have to get, you have to get to work and do something. For people uh, who don't believe that there is a God ordering and acting and listening and intervening with his creation and and just kind of sending out thoughts and prayers sounds like a cop-out. And in fact, I saw this this, um, funny picture. I I think it's funny. I don't know if y'all think it's funny, but it's kind of sad, but uh, it's this meme that someone made, you know, meme is like a, you know, a picture of, uh, for, for those of you who aren't a millennial, a meme is a picture that people make on the internet that has funny text attached to it that uh, gets sent around and becomes like this viral kind of thing. So I, I saw this one meme when I was just kind of Googling, oh, why are people so mad about thoughts and prayers? It was a picture of two cats uh, laying on their back on a couch, and they're just kind of like laying there as cats do, being lazy. And the text said, I decided to name my two cats Thoughts and Prayers because they're useless. Now, I mean, I mean that's serious stuff, right? I mean, there's a kind of humor to it, but it, man, if, if that's how you feel, then, then how do you approach these things in our life that are so big and so bad and so overwhelming that it feels like we can't actually do anything to change it? We as Christians, and I kind of mentioned that, uh, not to scare us and not to uh, appall us, uh, but we have to realize that there's this kind of cynicism about prayer out there because some of it still exists in our own hearts. The reason that cynicism exists is because people don't actually believe in the power of God to work. The reason we can be cynical or doubtful about the power of prayer in our own life is because we functionally don't trust in the power of God to work. The reason we struggle to pray, the reason we struggle to trust is because we don't actually believe that God really is working and that God really is listening and that he wants to help. You see, the power behind prayer is nothing in us. The the power behind prayer is the power of God at work in the world. Prayer is the way that we as Christians participate in God's healing and renewing work in our own lives and in this broken world. So if you're skeptical about prayer, your problem isn't that you don't believe in prayer. Your problem is you don't believe in God. So what do you do if you're the Apostle Paul? Because he's in jail. So he can't like do anything for this church in Colossae. And he's heard that they've received the gospel. And he's sitting behind bars. And he knows that God wants to grow them. He knows that God wants them to be fruitful. He knows knows that God wants them to be faithful. So, So what does Paul do? He prays. He sends his thoughts and his prayers to this church. And he believes that these prayers are actually going to do something. 
that they're actually going to change something. And in fact, that when we pray in line with the purposes of God, we can be confident that it has power to work, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it works, as it works and moves. And both what Paul prays for this church and how he prays is instructive for us. The subject of his prayer is something that every single person, Christian or non-Christian, wherever you are this morning, what Paul is praying for is something that all of us desperately want at the core of our beings. Every single one of us wants to live a life that matters. We all want to live a life that's worth something. We long to be worthy. We want to feel like at the end of our lives, we haven't wasted our time or failed in some kind of way. Paul prays that this church would live a worthwhile life. And by his prayer, we see that a worthwhile life, a life worthy of God, a life worthy of the gospel, a life worth living is lived by depending upon God. A life worthy of God comes from knowing his will, growing by his spirit, and resting in his power. So that's where we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to start by seeing that a life worthy of God comes from knowing his will. We begin needy. We begin life needing to know something, needing to receive God's revelation. This, this is our goal to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's what it says in verse 10. This is the goal of Paul's prayer. This is the goal of our life, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that brings pleasure to him. And this idea of walking is a biblical expression. It means just to live all of your life, to live your whole life in view of the smile of God before his face. living in reference to him, doing what pleases him, doing what is right and is fitting for his children. That's the goal, living a God-worthy life. But the posture that we must have as we kind of walk in this God-worthy life, uh, you can kind of see it if you, if you reverse verses 9 and 10. If you start with verse 10, you'll see... Uh, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, so that you will do that. Verse nine, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Do you see what we need? We're dependent. We need to know his will. We need wisdom. We need understanding. We don't just Wake up in the morning having wisdom, having understanding. We need God to provide it for us. Church, we are dependent creatures. And this is even before sin entered the world. Human beings were dependent creatures. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our own image. And, and they're going to have dominion over, over all of creation. They're going to be my image bearers. And then as soon as God creates man and woman, this is what he says. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. You see, from the very beginning, we needed God to tell us what we were for and what this world was for. So even without sin, even before any kind of disobedience entered the world, Adam and Eve were kind of going, so what am I supposed to do now? And God was like, oh, yes. Yes. Fill the earth, subdue it. 
Be fruitful, multiply, work, reflect my image. God doesn't assume that we would know how to do that without him telling it to us. We are made as human beings to be revelation receptors. So we need to know his will in order to do his will, in in order to live for his pleasure. Now, the, the will of God that we need to know shouldn't be thought of as just kind of like the, that kind of moment by moment uh, direction about kind of petty little things like, oh, what's the will of God for my breakfast today? Should I have cereal? Should I have eggs? Should I have cereal and eggs? You know, this is, it isn't about things like that. What Paul is uh, talking about when he describes the will of God here, he's talking about God's revealed will in his scripture, his commands, the things that are laid out for us that we can study, that we can be shaped by. Paul is saying, hey, you need to read and hear and shape your life around the Bible in order to be able to do what pleases God. This doesn't just come automatically. So he's saying, church, you've really believed the gospel. Great. If you do not have the Bible, you will not know how to please God. If you do not understand scripture, you will not understand how to live a life worthy of God. So he's saying, yes, you have life. Yes, you were born, but you've been born to grow. And to know how to grow, you have to know God's will. This doesn't just come automatically. We need God to communicate with us. You know, we... uh, had some friends uh, that we knew. It was a newly married couple. And for the first year of their life together in marriage, they always fought over food. And the reason they always fought over food was because the wife was a really excellent cook. And she kind of, her whole life had aspired to be the kind of cook who would um, make great dishes for her husband and exercise hospitality and and really be able to use her gifts uh, to serve uh, her husband. And so during the first year of the marriage, she would make things and they were well-made and they were objectively good. But every time the husband would kind of suggest, hey, maybe you could, uh, let's have some salt or where's the ketchup or things like that. And so she'd understandably get offended. And so um, she went to go talk to a friend and she was like, I mean, I'm making all this great stuff and he doesn't like it. And the friend very gently said, well, have you asked him what he likes? I mean, you never lived with him. You've, you, I mean, you, you've never, you, I mean, you guys haven't spent all this time together. You didn't grow up in the house that he did, eating what he ate. You don't know what his expectations are. You don't know what his preferences are. So have you bothered to ask him? And she had to say, well, no, I haven't. And so th- there was no way for her to know how to please unless she asked. (laughs) And the point is, so many of us approach our lives with God this way. And we just kind of walk out into the day without realizing that it actually takes time to learn what delights God. And it takes even more time, by the way, for the things that please God to be pleasing to us. It takes time for pleasing God to become our highest pleasure. Each of our lives are going to be shaped around the pursuit of someone's pleasure. 
But whose pleasure and whose will is behind most of our daily decisions? I mean, if we're honest, it's our own. We look and we think, we don't think, should I do this? We think, do I want to do this? (laughs) Will this please me? Will this be satisfying to me? We think that simply because we want to do something, we should do something, but that's a fallacy because we have disordered desires. (laughs) We have sin-cursed hearts. Our desires aren't in line with what they're supposed to be and the things that there are evil things, there are wrong things that, that bring us pleasure and that seem right to us. And so we need to have these desires transformed and conformed to God's desires so that our greatest joy would be found in pleasing him. Psalm 1611 says this, God, you make known to me the path of life. You, your word reveals the path that I should walk on, God. And in your presence, God, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In God's word, we learn how to live a life that pleases him. In God's word, we learn how to live a life that honors him, that's worthy of him, that's worthy of the gospel. That's the progress that we want to make. So Paul tells us that our progress has a purpose, right? To to glorify and to please God. But now he's going to descend into some details. And he's going to describe what the progress actually looks like. He's going to use a series of uh, ING verbs, Uh, that are continuous actions that are going to characterize a healthy and a worthwhile life, growing in the direction of the glory of God. We have to begin by knowing God's will, but then we continue by growing in God's spirit. Now, as we look in kind of the second half of 10 all the way through verse 11, we're going to see that growing in the spirit is a continual, lifelong process of change. You never grow out of growing in the spirit. These are foundational activities that characterize all of our life from the time we first meet the Lord to the time that the Lord brings us home to him. And the first of these uh, activities is what I'll call head and hands productiveness. Verse 10b, this is what it says. Bearing fruit in every kind of good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, in the Greek, these are kind of, uh, these two I-N-G words, bearing fruit and increasing, are, are kind of linked together, so I'm treating them as the same thing. And I think the reason Paul links them together is that he's kind of saying, okay, these are two sides of the same coin. Growing and increasing and being productive in the Christian life, making progress in the Christian life, isn't merely a matter of activity, fruitfulness and good works, stuff, you know, with, with the hands. And it's not merely a matter, a matter of increasing intimacy with God, knowledge of him personally, and kind of, you know, heartfelt devotion to him. It's not an either or, you know, some of us are more kind of, uh, dispositionally inclined to want to go out and do stuff for God. We're kind of the activist Christians. And then some others of us are, uh, more kind of inclined to just be the kind of like, the prayerful, kind of worshipful uh, Christians that are just, I just want to sit and commune with God. And Paul's saying you cannot separate them. And in fact, if you do, you'll, you'll, you'll be unfruitful and unproductive in the Christian life. And it's not even a matter of kind of 50-50, uh, good works and good devotion. It's 100 and 100. 
It's not a matter of finding some kind of uh, perfect balance in between the two of them. That's why he links them together. They're meant to work together. Knowing God and spending time with him should spur you out into the world to shine like stars and to share the hope that you've received. Um, Fruitfulness and knowledge should grow and increase throughout our lives. We gather in order to scatter, and then we gather back again together. Paul is saying here, the world needs people who are both radically committed to God and also radically committed to his world. Don't retreat into your holy huddle, but also don't neglect meeting together or you're going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in yourselves and in the world. And because of that danger... Because that danger of kind of being hardened and and the danger and the struggle of going out into the world, we don't just need to grow, we also need strength from God. And the strength that we need from God, we see in verse 11, is strength to suffer. Verse 11, this is what it says. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. I love that half of the verse, it's great. What's it for? For all endurance and patience. Let me explain uh, why I, say, I think this is a strength in order to suffer. Just look at the first half of, of the phrase. All power. And that power would be according to or in proportion to, literally, the might of his glory. How mighty, how strong is the glory of God? How wonderful, how powerful is the sum total of all of his divine perfections? How powerful is his brightness? How stunning is the greatness of God's radiance? That is the strength that Paul is praying for for those people. That is the strength that's working in and through us, the church. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the strength according to the might of God's glory. It's the same strength which also makes you alive in Christ. When you come to Christ, it's it's a little resurrection, right? You've passed from death into life and every time you die to sin continually throughout your life and and come alive to God, that's like another little resurrection. There's resurrection power at, at work right now in the world. Do you believe that? Paul's saying that you have that power available to you as a Christian. Resurrection power. Broke Jesus out of the grave. Transformed the world. But what's that power for? Why do we have this kind of strength? God gives his church this strength so that they can suffer. Being strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience. Endurance and patience are virtues that are displayed in the face of pain, in the face of suffering. Notice it's not power for your pleasure. It's not power for your success. It's power for endurance and patience. Endurance, uh, this word is, it's the capacity to see things through to the end. To stick it out in difficult and in scary situations. That's what you need God's strength for. One writer says that that the opposite of endurance is cowardice. 
The opposite of endurance is despondency. Kind of deep sadness and depression. So endurance means that you have this ability to stick it out. Patience, which some uh, old Bibles call long-suffering, is the ability to put up with pain. To absorb pain without taking revenge or lashing out in wrath. So, friends, are you ever afraid? Are you ever sad? Are you ever depressed? Are you ever despondent? When you get hurt by others, are you ever tempted to lash out and hurt them back? When you're insulted, do you ever want to insult back? Did you know that these struggles would be part of the normal Christian life? Did you know that the Bible names them? And I think it's, it's really merciful of God to name these struggles, to help us expect these struggles. Because when we don't expect pain, when we don't expect suffering, when you don't expect to be wounded and then have to struggle not to wound people back, we're going to be mad about two things. We're going to be mad first that we're experiencing pain. And then we're going to be mad because we've been taken surprise by pain. <laughs> we'll be both suffering and surprised. <laughs> And so Paul's saying, don't be surprised. I see you, church. I know it's going to be hard. Expect to suffer. And by the way, also expect that you won't have the power in yourself to bear up under the suffering. So God's going to give you supernatural resurrection strength according to the might of his glory. But as you learn God's will, and as you ask for his power, you're going to receive the strength that you need to deal with painful situations and painful people. A big part of living well, living a life worthy of God, is learning to suffer well. And even, if it's God's will, learning to die well. That's your calling as Christians, to live and to die to the glory of God. And so Paul's been kind of climbing up this, this ladder of virtues, and now he's reaching the peak. And this is kind of the, the capstone, and I think the most important of all of these aspects of growth that he wants to see, that he's praying for in the life of this church, this final virtue that Paul prays for is gratitude. Gratitude for grace. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks with joy to the Father. Paul mentions giving thanks last because uh, gratitude is the primary characteristic of a Christian. One writer says, gratitude is so basic, it's like salvation itself. G.K. Chesterton, who always has great um, quotes, says this, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. Do you take things for granted or do you take them with gratitude? Now, um, because of the word order of Greek, uh, there's a little phrase that's kind of jumbled up, and it's different from English. So depending on your translation, depending on what commentary you read, they're going to take these two little words, with joy, uh, in joy uh, in, in the Greek, um, and they're either going to attach them to verse 11, you know, so suffering and patience with joy, or they're going to attach them to verse 12. So with joy, giving thanks to God. And I think, if you want to know my opinion, I think it, it, it should be attached to verse 12. 
This idea, there's this idea of, yes, there's going to be endurance and there's going to be patience, but you're also going to be giving thanks with joy to God. So continually growing in gratitude, this means learning to live your life as a gift. Receiving each day, not as something you deserve, but as something that was freely given to you. Recognizing every breath you breathe comes because God was, a, was pleased to allow you to breathe it. Now, sometimes we have this uh, thing that happens. My wife and I will do this uh, where there's something we really want. It's like a gift we really want for Christmas or our birthday. And we'll say, oh, you know what? I'll just go on Amazon and I'll buy it for myself. And then you can wrap it, you know, and then you can put a card on it and then you just give it to me and I'll pretend to be surprised. <laughs> Right? But like, why mess with all the, the trouble of, of you having to figure out what I want? Just, just, I know what I want, so I'll go out and I'll get it, and then you just give it to me. Um, <laughs> so bad. <laughs> and so uh, we do this, and, but what happens when we do this is all the joy and all the surprise of giving and receiving gifts, all that kind of personal interaction that the, the stuff of life and love and relationship is made out of is missed, right? It's not a gift if you got it for yourself. And so what, the, what Paul is saying is that you didn't earn the life that you have. It was given to you as a gift from God because he loves you. Because he knows what you need more than you know. And he's got way more resources at his disposal to get you great things that you couldn't get for yourself. He's like the the best wealthy uncle that anyone's ever had. Actually, he's a loving father, is what the scripture says. And he knows how to give good gifts to his children. You see, gratitude flows from grace. Because grace, by its very nature is something that we do not deserve, something that we do not earn. Grace isn't given to the able. Grace is given to the weak and to the needy and to the poor. So that means all of us qualify, unless you think you're able, unless you think you're strong, unless you don't think you're needy. So Paul is, um, as he describes these, these characteristics, these continuous habits, he's speaking about a lifelong apprenticeship in God's spirit. We never stop needing to make progress. We never stop needing fresh strength. We never stop needing to be thankful. But as we've already seen, the power to live a worthwhile life, it doesn't come from us. A worthwhile life, a life that really matters, is received before it is achieved. So that the real work of making you worthy, according to the Bible, has already been finished. It's already been completed for you. Our life, according to Paul, a God-worthy life, should not be full of restless striving, but of resting in God's power. And that's our final point. A worthwhile life is about resting in God's power. Listen to what Paul says in verses 12 through 14. I love this. You can always just read this and close. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, past tense. 
He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. What else has he done? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us, past tense, into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Present tense. Right now, you have redemption. And what is that redemption? The forgiveness of sins. Paul's telling the church the story of their birth. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll tell uh, our son, uh, Gus, on his birthday, the story of his birth, which um, we were here. You know, he was born on December 5th, and it was the first Sunday of Advent. And I remember we're sitting back there in the back corner, and we're singing, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And so we're getting up and, uh, you know, uh, I think David was leading worship. And so we're sitting in the back and, you know, we just have kind of done the the meet and greet. And there was that awkward transition between like, hey, how you doing? And then we're going to sing now and clap our hands. And uh, we're much better as a church at clapping our hands now than we were before. And so we're kind of like, is anyone with me? And so back there and Shauna and I, we're getting it. I mean, we're singing, we're clapping, we're there with all of our friends. And then all of a sudden she goes, Oh no. And her water broke like right in the middle of the service. Um, and so, um, that's the story of the beginning of how Gus was born. And we, and we love to tell it. Uh, we love to be reminded of the story of how kind of he came into the world. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to think about. It's wonderful, wonderful to reflect on. Uh, Paul is telling the church the story of how they came into the world. And actually what he's doing is he's drawing, he's kind of like pulling all these threads from the Old Testament. He's gathering together all these word pictures, um, all these images of Old Testament stories of redemption. And he's saying, Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know what you already have? I remember the last time I was here, I kind of talked about the gospel as this priceless gem. And Paul's holding it up and he's saying, do you see what you have? Let's talk about it. This is the story of the gospel. And for you, if you believe in Christ, this is also your story. Paul draws on this whole backstory of images, but I think the one image that I love is the image of the Exodus. And you can see little echoes of it here, especially with that word um, redemption. It's because you see the story of the Exodus is God's people, Israel, they were enslaved. Uh, They were in Egypt. They were under a foreign uh, enemy power, right? They were literally in a different kingdom, a kingdom called Egypt that was ruled by an evil king, governed by an evil power, and his name was Pharaoh. And God sent Moses to rescue his people. It was a rescue mission to pull them out of that evil kingdom and to bring them into a new kingdom. And they had to pass through water to get there, which Paul says later in Corinthians symbolizes the water of baptism. Isn't that incredible? They pass through water to come into God's kingdom. And then after he's rescued them, he gives them his law. After he redeems them, after he claims them, after he sets his love on them, he tells them how to respond to him. 
and he gives them his presence to be with them and follow them through the desert. This is remarkable. This is a picture of our lives as Christians. We have been saved to obey. We don't obey in order to be saved. And we have to get that order correct. I can't tell you how many times during my time uh, in young life, and even in my conversations with college students now, I'll hear something like this. I'll hear someone say, well, I just don't feel worthy of God's love. I mean, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't live up to his commands. So um, I just need to get that sorted out and then I can become a Christian. And do you see what they're doing? They're mixing the order up. Do you remember what we sang in that first song, Come Ye Sinners? I mean, just the title is helpful, right? Who is God calling? Sinners. And what it says is, don't nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't dream of ever being fit to obey God. Don't dream of ever being fit to deserve salvation. The only fitness that God requires, the only ability that God requires is for you to feel your need of him. Do you feel needy? Do you feel like you lack ability? God is saying, I've got great news for you. Come, sinners, receive ability, receive forgiveness, receive worthiness. You will be worthy because I will make you worthy. You will be qualified because I will qualify you. I will qualify you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The default setting of our hearts is to think, once I can live a good life, then God will love me. The gospel is God has loved you. And he loved you when you were still a sinner. Now go and live and walk and move in the power of the commands of the God who has rescued you, of your new king. Go live under the laws of the new kingdom. You see, the word domain in verse 13 is really important. And I think it's a, this evocative word. We used to live in the domain under the power and the control of darkness. <laughs> Uh, I want you to think of like Mordor in Lord of the Rings, right? It's this this realm of darkness. Uh, This one theologian who's Dutch and uses amazing words, his name's Herman Ritterboss. He says, we lived in the the aeon of darkness, right? It's like this, this different age that creation was under, but now a new age has broken in. It's the aeon. It's the age. It's the kingdom of the spirit. It's the kingdom of grace. It's the kingdom of the son. It's the kingdom of God. It has broken into this world and it is breaking into this world and the old order of things is passing away. Do you believe that? Christians, you are citizens of a new government, of a new kingdom. You're operating under a new power, a new influence. And if you're a believer, that influence, that power works in you to move and to obey and to believe and to trust God. And the son, that son, we receive all the gifts of this kingdom through the son. It is the kingdom of the son. 
We get transferred in the kingdom uh, and redeemed through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We are literally bought back, ransomed from slavery. And this ransom, it says, consists in the forgiveness of sins. That word forgiveness literally means the sending away of sins. Christian, when you believe in Jesus, God takes your sins away from you, removes them from you, banishes them, sends them away, right? There's the image in the Old Testament of the scapegoat. So it was this, this animal that, that the community would put their sins on and then they would you know, just slap the animal and he'd run outside of town, right? Outside the border of the city as if to say, just get out of here. And it's a picture that God is separating your sins from you so that when he looks on you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, his son, all the weight, all the burden of guilt, all the, the burden of feeling unqualified, God removes from you, takes off of you, and he puts that burden on Christ, on the cross. And everything that makes Jesus worthy, his identity as God's beloved child, his rightness, his righteousness, everything good about him gets placed on you. What a glorious weight to wear. That's your inheritance. That's your identity. Do you believe it? It was bought, that gift was purchased at great cost to God, even though we accept it freely. First Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. It was through the blood of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 6.20, when Paul's talking about how we should live now, he says, Don't you know your life is not your own? You can't just do whatever you want because why? You were bought with a price. That price, the price of our redemption is Jesus' broken body and blood. And so it's, impor- it's uh, appropriate, I think, this morning to come to the communion table. This is the meal that, that, that symbolizes, that reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. It symbolizes our belonging and believing in him. This meal is for those who have trusted in Christ and who have joined themselves in obedience and fellowship to his people, the church, who, who share an inheritance in the saints in light. in light. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, isn't this a participation in the blood of Christ? You have forgiveness of sins. That's what this is speaking about. The bread that we break, he said, isn't it a participation in the body of Christ? There's one bread and all of us together are one body. That's why we partake of one bread together. And this was the tradition that was handed down to the church from Christ. That on the night um, Jesus was crucified, uh, that he took the bread and that he broke it in front of his disciples. And he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And then that same night, the Passover meal, he took the cup of wine and he said, this blood, this wine, is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
Every time you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, We've heard the gospel, we've read the gospel, we've uh, sung the gospel, and now uh, this meal is us seeing the gospel, tasting the gospel. It, It preaches to our senses the reality of what Jesus has done for us. And so I would encourage you that, that this isn't just a meal for members of Christ Community Church. Uh, this is a meal for all those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and have joined themselves to God's body, the church. And so I'd invite you uh, to come forward if that's true of you. And if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, if you don't know where you stand with uh, his bride, the church, that I would encourage you, like, as other people come up to take uh, the bread and to take the cup, that you would take what the bread and the cup represent. You'd take Jesus, that you'd receive him, that you'd trust in him. And then afterwards, you'd come and talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to someone uh, from the church, so that next time we eat, you could eat and drink as a member of God's family. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have uh, qualified us. We thank you for your grace and for all that this meal represents. Lord, help us to eat and drink it in remembrance of you. And would you grow us and help us to make progress as we seek to run in the path of your commands. We know that you are faithful, Lord. Would you train us to be faithful? In Jesus' name. Amen.